Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. We've got a terrific Tuesday morning show for you, including how COVID cases are surging everywhere in the province, including at British Columbia's only 24-hour emergency hospital for horses, veterinarians at the Equine Veterinary Hospital in Langley, pleading for help this morning. We got the exclusive details for you on that later in the show. Meanwhile, the race to vaccinate British Columbians gets kicked up a notch today. The province's online vaccine appointment system went live this morning. We'll have an update on that for you. The COVID outbreak among the Vancouver Canucks threatening their NHL season. The latest on that, of course, the COVID case count surging in B.C. and across Canada. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau uh, just a short time ago with a new message for Canadians. Have a listen. This isn't the news any of us wanted, but hospitalizations are surging. ICU beds are filling up. Variants are spreading. And even people who had convinced themselves they didn't need to be concerned are getting sick. Even if the sun is shining and the weather is getting warmer, COVID-19 isn't done with us yet. And that means we all have to hold tight a little longer. All right, Justin Trudeau speaking a short time ago as cases continue to go up, hospitalizations up as well. Some people are suggesting that the way to solve this is not just the vaccine, but that it's going to take a stricter lockdown. Let's discuss that now with my guest, Dr. Yanir Barham. He's an MIT, tra- an MIT trained scientist. He's an expert in quantitative analysis of pandemics. Uh, one of the major voices in the COVID zero movement. And I'm very pleased to welcome him to the show. Dr. Barham, thanks a lot for coming on. Thank you. Okay, I appreciate it a lot. Uh, when we talk about crushing COVID, you've described it like trying to put out a house fire right so right now right now it's almost like uh some people think you should maybe make let it do a controlled burn but you're saying no you've got to turn on the fire hoses full speed and, and put the fire out once and for all correct yeah there's just a mistake that was made very early in this pandemic where people made a decision that they were not going to go for elimination instead trying to live with a virus. That was just a basic mistake of understanding and lack of experience. And, and since then, we've seen that nowhere in the world has that strategy been effective. There is a second, um, the, the, the living with a virus. On the other hand, the elimination strategy has proven itself in multiple countries, large and small, mainland and islands, and of course, including the Atlantic Canada provinces. Um, the the um, uh, the other confusion, which kind of goes along with the first one, is that there is a trade-off between um, death and disease and economics. That somehow we have to protect the economy uh, and allow people to get sick, 
and, and that's just wrong. And the point is that um, and if you get rid of the disease, you go back to the life that we want. The, you know, if we talk about lockdowns, that sounds like a bad thing. But what we're really yeah. doing is trying to get to where we want, not trying. We can get to where we want by doing a short lockdown, going all out, getting to the elimination that has been found to be successful in Atlantic Canada as well as New Zealand, Australia, Taiwan, and so on. Um, and, and the success in doing that shows up economically as well. So there's just a recent analysis, actually two articles that are published in France by top economists coming on the back of many other papers written in economics that just show that it's the wrong idea that there is a trade-off. Instead, if you get to elimination, the economy recovers, uh, the people are able to not only do social life and sporting events and everything else that we want, but the economy can run at full steam. And, and, and any price that you pay up front for the, quote, lockdown is an investment. We're investing in elimination, and then we achieve it, and then we can go to the life that we want. Okay, talking to Dr. Yanir Baram about COVID-0, the idea of a, a stricter lockdown to defeat the virus quickly. You mentioned that you argue that this has worked in other countries. You, you, know, you noted several of them, but including New Zealand. I mean, this is New Zealand, I guess, is one of the most often cited countries. Can you, can you just remind the listeners of what they did there? Well, they had a very strong lockdown for about four to weeks, five weeks. Uh, and then they got to the point where there were no cases of community transmission. And that means that um, there might be a case or two, particularly among people that are come into the country, but they're all quarantined for 14 days. Uh, and if you're careful about it, then you don't end up having new cases in the community. And if you have one or two cases and they've had them, uh, then they pounce on it and stop it. They've had a few-day lockdowns of one city in in Australia that's also achieved this. They had a lockdown of one neighborhood of of um, of uh, Sydney. They had a lockdown that was part of the uh, city of Melbourne, not all of the city of Melbourne, uh, for an, a longer period of time because they waited longer before they pounced on it. So we've learned. Yeah that if you react quickly, you can get rid of it, just like with a fire. What do you say to the argument that the countries that you've cited, like New Zealand, for example, are an island, is a small country, it's an island, that it's easier to control the spread in a situation compared to a huge country like Canada with a long shared border with the United States? Well, the main thing is that each part of Canada can do this independently. We've seen that Atlantic Canada has been able to um, be in this without the disease state. They, again, also had a small outbreak, which they stopped. Um, uh, we, Vietnam has been able to do that, and, and Singapore and Thailand, and, 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 of course, China has done that and, and has sustained it. Their economy is booming. They're going to get 9% economic growth this year, according to current projections. Um, so the reality of it is that it can be done in many places, and in fact, it can even be done within localities within a state. So if you protect areas, the basic idea is if you do a strong lockdown, and that yeah. means going all out because you want to be done with it in a few weeks, 
Um, the smaller the area that you can protect with travel restrictions, and travel restrictions doesn't mean that you seal off borders. It just means that you limit non-essential travel. Commuters are generally very responsible, so you permit the commuters and, and you allow them to cross the border. And, of course, it's essential travelers that are the ones that are going to need to travel during this time. Right. So there's not that much travel. And so you're not likely to transfer cases from one area to another. So once you've done that, you can have local areas that have no community transmission. They can open up slowly. You know, take, give it a few weeks to open up, to be careful about it. But then after a few weeks, after you get to zero. So it's about, you know, if you have a lot of cases in a particular area, it takes about four to six weeks. What do you to say to... to Dr. Bariam, what do you say to the argument that even if you did bring in a strict lockdown, there is going to be a segment of the population that always will break the rules? I mean, we've got we got some new public health orders just imposed here in British Columbia, yet we saw a couple of restaurants in Vancouver float the rules. Uh, we see people continuing to travel over the Easter long weekend in the, in the province. Uh, you, you just won't have enough people who will go along with it to make it work. So it's it actually is... There are two different things that we have to understand. Number one, if there's a goal, right, if you do a lockdown and you don't have a goal in doing it, people may be less likely to observe the rules than if you tell them, look, if we do this for four to six weeks, we'll be able to open up normally. It's an investment in going back to normal. And, and, and that appeals to people. People can get on board. They can compete with other areas of the state or the country in order to get there. And that has a much better popular appeal. And okay. the other thing is that we tend to emphasize this conflict. Sure, there are always few people who are not going to follow the rules, but it's a very robust strategy. It doesn't require 100% compliance any more than a vaccination drive requires absolutely everyone to get vaccinated in order for it to work. It's really about stopping the transmission, and stopping the transmission can be done even if you have you know, for this disease, 70 or 80 percent of people comply. But, of course, we okay. want it to be much higher. So we can use fines. We can do all kinds of enforcement. But we do have to understand that it is a robust strategy. This is a real-world strategy. It's been done in real-world countries, and it's been done many different places in the world. Okay. And it can work in Canada. All right, welcome back to the show. As we continue talking about COVID cases surging, is it time for a total lockdown? My guest is Dr. Yanir Bariam from the COVID Zero Movement. Let's go right to your phone calls. Dave in 100 Mile House. Hey, Dave. Hey, how you doing? I'm good. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, I would definitely support a total lockdown. I think it's something we should have been able to do a year ago. Uh, makes me think back of the fires of 2017. Uh, we took steps to... Uh, remove citizens from the danger and we evacuated whole cities and set up evacuation city uh, centers all over the place and looked after everybody for food and water and their pets and all that i think if we had done something similar but maybe a reverse uh, approach during the fire or when the pandemic broke out and had everybody locked down and have a you know an army of volunteers going around making sure everybody had food and water and medication and what they needed and had it done that for two or three weeks or a month, we would have had a, a much better handle on it. Than okay. Okay, others. Dave, thank Dave, thank you very much for the call. Dr. Bariam, what would be the major elements of a lockdown in your mind? Like, would you close schools, for example? 
Yeah, absolutely. Schools are, you know, this business about kids not getting infected and not transmitting is just, you know, kids are more asymptomatic. And so there have been studies that have ignored uh, the cases that are asymptomatic. And so they claim that kids are not getting infected or not transmitting. But it's just wrong. Uh, kids are getting infected, transmitting, and, and they also get long COVID. And the long COVID is about a third of kids. So it's a very, very big effect. Uh, and, and the long-term consequences of that uh, long COVID are hard to know. But as we saw from SARS, the original one that also affected Canada, if you go and talk to the people who now have uh, the long, ver- long COVID version of SARS, it's whatever it is now, you know, over 10 years later, and people are disabled and so on. So we really do not want to get have children get long COVID and Okay. We should protect them and protect the community. Now, he said something, by the way, very important. The tremendous advantage to having people check in with each other and, and help each other when they get sick or, or when they, um, they need uh, support with food or, 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 or other things. Um, that community health is a tremendously important part of any pandemic effort. In fact, it's really a mistake to think about a pandemic effort as being about government action or even about the healthcare system action. It's mostly about the community. If people okay. in the community get together and decide to do this, it gets done. Let's uh, squeeze in a couple more calls. Ken on the line in Langley. Hey, Ken. Hi, Mike. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Sure. Hey, uh, this, uh, all, everything this good doctor is saying confirms everything I've been saying on a lot of people. Uh, about our government officials are so reactionary and so wimpy about getting on top of things. Dix didn't have a foot to stand on this morning, or when uh, Vaughn Palmer mentioned uh, Dix saying, oh, gee, it's about our freedom of movement. We're not like that. Well, you know what? This cowardly uh, behavior from our government officials has to stop. And uh, you know what about schools? Boy, there sure being a being sure has been a lot of lying and covering up the information from our officials about schools and the okay. transmission. All right, Ken. Thanks. Thank you for the call. Let's squeeze a couple more in here if we can. Ross on the line in Kamloops. Go ahead, Ross. You're on the air. Yeah, mate. I just wanted to talk about those lockdowns and being Australian and listening to it firsthand from my family over there. And I just can't believe that we're even considering not having one. I mean, we should have done it months and months ago, maybe even from the beginning, but. These little you know, restrictions here and there, they're not helping. Until you really shut something down and cut it out. I, mean, I showed you there was a good example of that Aussie Rules football game there. Just last, last week I was watching it on TV. Now, yeah. the, team that was, the team that was playing was 2,000 kilometres away and they had one outbreak, one person, and they hadn't had any for months, and they made everyone in the football game who came from that city, even though it was two weeks beforehand, they asked them to get up and leave the football game, leave the stadium, because one person may have affected them 2,000 kilometres ago. Two weeks before that, the actual commentators for the game had to stop commentating the game because they were in Queensland the week before, and they had to get up and leave halfway through the game themselves. Wow. Okay, Ross, thank you for sharing that. I appreciate it. If you did not get through, we had a lot of calls there we just can't get to. So what I encourage you to do is phone the buzz line and leave me a voicemail there, and we may play it later. Let me know what you think. 604-331-BUZZ is the number. 604-331-2899. My great thanks this morning to Dr. Yanir Bariam for being my guest. Dr. Bariam, thank you. One more comment. I got got 10 seconds. I just want to say that all of this talk about hospital beds and ICU beds 
it's really not okay. We shouldn't be making people into beds. Okay, thank, thank you, Dr. Bariam. I appreciate your time this morning. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the move to electric vehicles now. Do you drive an EV? Are you thinking maybe your next vehicle will be an electric vehicle? Get set to call me on the open line on that. I really want to hear from you. Meanwhile, Volkswagen introducing more EVs. As a matter of fact, uh, the German automaker recently announced they were going all in on electric vehicles so much that they were even going to change the company's name to Volkswagen. Get it? Like electric volts? Volkswagen. Turned out it was just a bad joke, though. Let's check in with Dan Alika now, the car reviewer for Auto Trader. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Hey, Dan. Hey, Mike. Thanks for having me back. Thanks a lot for being here again. And uh, this Volkswagen story I thought was pretty comical that this thing seemed to backfire a bit on Volkswagen when they announced this this change and a lot of media outlets fell for this and reported it as fact let me play this for you Dan this is a report from the uh, the Reuters news agency have a listen some thought it was an early April fool's joke but Volkswagen is apparently about to change its name at least in the US there it will soon be known as Volkswagen That's volts, as in electricity. The new name takes effect in May and is intended to flag VW's big move into electric cars. All EVs in the US will have Volkswagen badging on the rear. Conventionally powered cars will just have the VW emblem. Oh boy. Okay, Reuters got taken in there. Dan, what's the deal with this thing? Like, they they originally said this was the truth, right? And then they... They coughed it up later that it was supposed to be a, a, a joke? What happened here? Yeah, it was definitely, you know, I would describe it as a as a blunder at best, uh, you know, a failed joke. Apparently, uh, a press release was accidentally published. Um, CNBC picked it up, a few other outlets, and they confirmed it with sources within Volkswagen of America. And then as the, you know, as the ball started to roll, uh, Volkswagen officials in Germany were the ones who actually put a stop to it and said, hey, no, it's it's a it's an April Fool's joke. Unfortunately, it was three days early. Maybe they're using some sort of April Fool's advent calendar that the rest of us aren't familiar <laughs> with. But I always thought those jokes were reserved for the day of, but apparently not. And uh, yeah, it definitely didn't go over too well. Yeah, I mean, if you're going to do an April Fool's joke, here's... Uh, the rules as I remember them are you have to do it on April Fool's and I believe at t- before 12 noon is exactly. usually the cutoff. Yeah. yeah, not like three days early. So the interesting yeah. thing on this is that the Volkswagen effectively lied to the press about this, right? Because a lot of media outlets looked at this release and, and it didn't sound, I mean, it didn't sound completely unrealistic. Like maybe they were really going to do this. And when they contact, they contacted Volkswagen, and Volkswagen uh, basically confirmed it, right? Yeah, and I, yeah. I got to be honest with you, like the the kind of the, the the person inside of me that appreciates you know cleverness and creativity, I loved it. Apparently, you know this Volkswagen uh, thing. You know, a few years ago there was an ad campaign in Norway, um, and I was like, oh, this is such a clever idea. Maybe it's a little too far to switch the company name, but hey, you know. I'm not in charge over there. And, and so I was like, you know, it's cute and it's clever and whatever. But to find out, yeah, that it was, you know, a bit of a hoax that they took too far, you know, in this yeah. era of, 
of fake news. It just seemed like a, a bit of a a bit of a miss. Like the intentions were good, I guess, but it just didn't go over so well. Right, kind of backfired on them, and they did eventually cough it up, though, right, and say, "Yeah, we, yeah." We, I mean. Was it deliberate, though? I mean, are there still some questions here about how this happened? Because at first, it they sort of made it look like it was an accidentally released news release that was posted prematurely on their site or something. Yeah, right? and that's kind of the, you know, the question mark of, like, it was a way to garner attention for, yeah. you know, the, the upcoming ID4 Um you know, but that what is, is what is that? What's the ID for? It's it's a new it's it's Volkswagen's. Uh, you know, I guess it would be the second fully electric Volkswagen model uh, to go on sale here in Canada, and it should be arriving in dealers. You know, this this spring, um, it's pretty cool looking. It's it's definitely funky, but it's uh, it's a neat looking kind of sporty sport back uh, is all the trend now with these kind of coupe like crossovers. But it's it's got a cool look and. You know, it should kind of fit the bill of a fifty-five to sixty thousand dollars starting price uh, for an all-electric Volkswagen. So again, it's like all the ingredients are there to say, "Hey, we can," you know, kind of get people hyped about it. It's just the execution wasn't so good right. uh, with this whole name change situation. And you know what? I mean, the, there's conspiracy theories. Was it real? And and Germany put the kibosh on it. Uh, and and Volkswagen just you know said oh yeah no it was it was never supposed to be uh, a legit thing but credit to Volkswagen Canada uh, separated itself from this controversy right didn't even want to participate um, oh. f- from the beginning so this was a U.S. unfortunately that doesn't change the fact that you know we consume so much you know U.S. news and and really the globalization of of the news environment being what it is it's impossible. To, to cut us off, but to Volkswagen Canada's credit, it, it wanted nothing to do with this from the very start. Okay, well, it's, there's an old saying that there's no such thing as bad publicity, so I don't know, maybe at the corporate CEO of Volkswagen America, maybe they're thinking this was a success, or or maybe not. They seem to be taking a lot of grief and criticism over it. Let me ask you generally, uh, Dan, about where we're at right now with electric vehicles. Like, Are, are most major automakers moving to an increased uh, uh, more electric models or, or even going totally sure. electric. Yeah, we're definitely at that. You know, I think this is, this is like a big, you know, tipping point. Uh, I think this year we're, we're seeing a lot more, you know, Kia and Hyundai uh, have been unveiling more and more electric vehicles. You know, GM has been un- unveiling electric vehicles. You have brands like Jaguar committing to going all electric. I really think this is kind of, the tipping point that's been, you know, 20 plus years in the making, and we're really going to see that cascade now of of great new, you know, electric vehicles with, with good range um, that are going to help to kind of change the stigma, I think. Speaking of Dan Alika from Auto Trader, Dan, you do a great job there at Auto Trader. I, I encourage people to check out your stuff, and including your latest column here on freight fees so these are like one of the hidden fees for a new vehicle can you tell me about this the freight fees yeah it's you know it's been a practice uh for years that you know obviously just like any product uh the cost of getting it to you know the the retailer that you buy it from is is passed on to the consumer but in the auto industry it's always been a separate line item so you know let's say it's a nineteen thousand nine hundred and ninety five dollar vehicle 
and you automatically think to yourself, okay, I'm going to add the tax and that's the price. And then you show up at the, you know, at the dealer and you find out that it's another $1,600 to get it there. And, you know, research that, that we do internally uh, on pricing, it's such an important factor for Canadian shoppers, right? I mean, you want to know what you're paying for. And I appreciate the transparency of it, that it's showing it as a separate item. But to me, it's just kind of that, like you said, that hidden fee of an extra, you know, could be as much as $2,500 that you're not necessarily budgeting for when you look at that advertised price. Yeah. And do you think these freight fees are realistic? Like, you know, it could be like two grand for the freight fee for the delivery fee of a vehicle. Is that is that a reasonable charge? It sounds like a lot. I mean, you know, when you really, at first, yes, it's definitely one of those, you know, eye-watering numbers. But when you start yeah. to think about it, you know, you look at transport costs are only going up, um, you know, vehicles, and, and they tend to not to get too much into the kind of, you know, minutia of it. But, you know, obviously a bigger vehicle, they, you know, you might only be able to fit six uh, three-row SUVs on one single truck as opposed to like eight cars, right? So the that's where you get the balance. You know, it might cost a little bit more because you can't fit as many vehicles on. And I want to give automakers the benefit of the doubt here and say, yeah, you know, I totally get it. And, and it's an expensive uh, activity to ship these vehicles. But if you take a look at a brand like Genesis, it's all in, you know, all inclusive pricing. Now don't, don't let that fool you. It's not that Genesis is eating the cost to get the vehicles um, you know, to your local market. But what's happening is that freight price is included in the MSRP, in the manufacturer's suggested retail price. So what you see is what you pay aside yeah. from tax, of course. All right, welcome back to the show, talking electric vehicles with Dan Alika from Auto Trader. Got lots of phone calls. Let's go right to them. Uh, Jim and Kamloops. Hey, Jim. Hey, how you doing, Michael? Today? I'm, I'm good. Go ahead. Uh, look, my question is... Uh, the electric car industry still hasn't solved the uh, the battery life and distance uh, question. Uh, s- until that happens, I don't think consumers are going to have an awful lot of confidence. If I want to drive to Saskatoon today, I can't without hey, Dan, a lot of, without a lot of inconvenience. Dan, and what's the so, status? What's the status of that? Yeah, you know, obviously that's that's a big problem um, in terms of range anxiety. But you know, the reality is when it comes to this kind of chicken chicken and the egg situation, I think, you know, it's going to be that there, there is no choice, right? We, we need to come up with more, you know, sustainable transportation and electrification is really where we're at in terms of the, yeah. the industry wide push. Um, it's getting better. You know, you're, you're able to, to top up uh, at quick charging locations and, you know, add a hundred kilometers or more in, you know, 15, 15, 20 minutes, which is great. No, it doesn't solve that problem of getting to Saskatoon. But, you know, I think that, that this is kind of the reality of, of where we are as an industry. Well, is that true though? That he wouldn't be able to drive to Saskatoon in an electric vehicle. Are there no charging stations between there and Kamloops? Well, there, there are charging stations. It's just going to take, you know, quite a bit, right? Because I mean, if you think about it, let's even say optimistically, if you could fully charge your battery, in two hours, but that's only going to give you, say, 500 kilometers of range, and you're looking at a good, you know, 2,500 to 3,000 kilometer yeah. drive. It's definitely, uh, you know, it, it's daunting. Yeah. Let's go to Merlin. Uh, Merlin on the line in Clearwater. Hi. Good morning. Yes. A um, couple points. First off, um, most of the stuff out there is boring, so I'm building my own 
uh, electric car in the garage right now out of a 69 Datsun 510. So I have wow. something interesting to drive. Um, second point is, where's the trucks? If we're going to solve mm-hmm. this, we need commercial vehicles and trucks on mass on dealership lots. Um, Canada runs on pickup trucks everywhere outside of the, the urban centers. And then the, my last point would be, the electric charging model needs to move to places like restaurants. If you're going to sit somewhere for 45 minutes or two hours, you want to do it where you can have a meal, and then your first 45, 50 minutes of your time is gone anyways. Okay, Dan, what do you think of those points? Totally agree, and you know you are seeing uh, trucks in the works, right? That's that's what's happening right now is that shift towards electrification means you know, you've got a bunch of different startups, a bunch of different partnerships with you know, with kind of legacy automakers um, developing trucks. So you've got companies like Canoe, Rivian. Um, there's, a, you know, another one called Lordstown Motors that's been in the news a little bit lately, not necessarily for good, good reasons, but the point is that they are around the corner. Ford has committed to an electrified F-150. Um, there's, a, you know, a, a hybrid version of the F-150 that's available right now. So I agree, you know, it's definitely what needs to happen. Um, but we are, that's why I said earlier about, you know, we're kind of, we've hit that watershed moment. And I really think yeah. that this is where you start to see the future play out. Okay, Larry on the line in Vernon. Hey, Larry. Hey. Hi, go ahead. Yeah, can you hear me okay? Yes, I can. Go ahead. Okay, I got, I've got an electric vehicle. I drive 160 plus kilometers a day. I love it. It's seamless. Uh, the idea that you can't go to Saskatoon, you're not going to drive straight through. Stop for lunch in Golden. Have a <laughs> plug it in, charge it while you have lunch. It's easy. Okay, There's Larry. chargers everywhere. Okay, Larry. Thank, thank you, Larry. A very enthusiastic EV owner there, Larry. Michael in West Van. Hey, Michael. How you doing? I'm good. Go ahead. Yeah. Hi. Uh, I just bought an EV, a PSO EV, which I'm very happy with. Okay. And uh, just want you to know that I've had a ton of cars from Porsche 911s all the way through to uh, Range Rovers, and I've never driven an easier car. And some of the cost savings are amazing, never mind the, uh, the regenerative braking system, which, of course, a lot of people who don't have an electric car don't seem to know about. But that really puts uh, the dampers on having to replace your brakes every now and again. Oh, okay. What, um, do, you like, what do you like about it the most besides the cost savings? Well, uh, the car itself is a nice car. Um, yeah. the, the cost savings is fine. Um, it, it's easier to drive. One of the things I like is the is the torque that you've got in an electric mm. car, and uh, you know Tesla started off with that. But this little uh, this little Kia Soul, I swear, it accelerates zero to sixty quicker than my old nine eleven Porsche would in the early eighties. Wow. Oh, okay. um, wow. The torque mm. on an electric car is good. Uh, I just think that uh, it's, it's the way to go. And, People who talk about, well, the range of it, this has got over a 400-kilometer range on a full battery charge. Uh, I have a friend who's got a, a Chevy Volt, and he regularly drives it down to Palm Springs. Well, not now with COVID, but he, he yeah. has driven it down to Palm Springs. He plans his route. He knows exactly where to charge up, and everything works fine. So eventually, okay. of course, the range is going to get bigger. Thank the you, Michael. The going to get bigger. Thank you, Michael. Let's squeeze in one more. Wally and Langley. Wally, you got 30 seconds. Go ahead. Hi, uh, yes, uh, we have a, uh, a Nissan Leaf that we've been driving for over a year. We are 200% satisfied with it. And uh, the the thing I like about it the best is the, the zero time it takes my, out of my life to uh, to fuel up. I used to spend 45 minutes going to Costco to buy gas, 
uh, every week. So that costs you a lot of money in time and energy. We drive this thing home. We plug it in. You get you get back in. You got a full okay. tank. You another 300 kilometers away to go. Thank you, Wally. Okay, getting a lot of love for the EVs on the phone lines today. Thank you for all your calls. Dan, it's always great to have you on. Thanks for coming on today. Thanks so much, Mike. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll. Less work, more clean. Terms apply. Take it easy. All right, welcome back to the show. COVID cases uh, surging in the province. The virus is everywhere, including at BC's only full-service veterinary hospital for horses, the Equine Veterinary Hospital in Langley, struggling to provide emergency services now after COVID struck some members of the staff. They are pleading for help. My guest is Dr. David Payton. He's a veterinarian with Payton Martin Veterinary Services, and I'm pleased to welcome him to the show. David, thank you for coming on. Good to be here, Mike. Thanks. appreciate it a lot. Can you tell me about some of the operations there at the horse hospital? It sounds like a very unique operation here in the province. Well, it is. Um, it's a, 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 an animal, uh, equine-only uh, surgical facility. We have a boarded surgeon, surgeon here, a specialty surgeon, and uh, it's where the you know the critical care cases come to uh, to be looked after. And uh, inadvertently, uh, you know, we've been uh, hit with uh, some cases, and that's forced us to shut down. But it's brought into focus this whole business of why veterinarians haven't been able to get vaccinated and, and at least have some protection against this uh, scenario that's arisen at our hospital. And you know, I don't necessarily just need this to focus on our hospital. I wanted to focus on, on veterinarians throughout the province, and and, yeah. and and in particular, emergency clinics, the emergency clinic of the Fraser Valley in, in Langley, 60 employees. That's where every small animal emergency virtually in the Fraser Valley goes. And if those facilities go down, it's, it's, it's huge. Um, it's calving season. It's foaling season. It's lambing season. What about, you know, a rural veterinary practice where the area, the ranchers depend on the services, uh, particularly no vaccines have been done. And when yeah. you look at the list of people that have been vaccinated or eligible to be vaccinated, uh, you don't see veterinarians there. And, and yet, you know, herbal medicine practitioners and aestheticians and, I know plumbers and wine distribution people that have all been able to get vaccinated. So it's kind of like, what you know, what's going on? Okay, how many staff do you have there at the, the horse hospital? Uh, Sixteen. Sixteen. And how many, how many of the staff have got COVID? Two, and they've been in isolation and, and following all protocols, uh, but we basically had to shut down our hospital. Because right, and one of, the, one of the people who got COVID is one of your key veterinarians, I understand. That's correct. Yeah, can you tell me about that? Well, just, uh, you know, to, to, as, as our health officials have been telling us, you can't be too careful. And, and maybe we haven't heard of too many veterinary practices be, uh, getting uh, problems because we have been strictly careful. But we still have to see emergency patients. And, and inadvertently, uh, we were, uh, one of our staff was affected. Another veterinarian working in close uh, uh, contact became uh, infected. And, and we've had to take all the 
appropriate precautions because of that. Okay, what about what about the horses? Can horses, can animals catch COVID? Can horses get the virus? Well, when I say yes and no, COVID has, excuse me, uh, the coronavirus has been around for a long, long time. Like, you know, I learned about coronavirus when I was in vet school 40 years ago. It's a completely and absolute different strain. So, no, no there's no risk. Uh, there's no clinical cases going back and forth between animals and, and humans. Okay, so this is a, a case where it's the, the humans who care for the horses or the ones who have gotten sick. And you, you mentioned a story to me, David, in an email about a horse that you had in your care that needed emergency surgery, and yet the surgeon had COVID. And the horse, this was a life or death situation for this horse. Can you tell me what happened there? Yeah, I, I can, Mike. And, and uh, you know, it's a great pride I, I'm able to say this, but we evacuated our hospital. We evacuated all personnel in our hospital. And the two affected veterinarians, complete with the N95 masks, managed to repair this horse's fractured leg. And, um, that's usually a job with four to five people involved. The two of them did it themselves, and uh, that was a middle-of-the-night deal with no exposure to anybody. But we saved that horse's life, and, and otherwise it would have been put down. We made efforts to get other veterinarians that were uh, qualified and, and, and weren't able to get them to come. Uh, and uh, and it, it was a happy outcome, but it just brought focus to me, which is why I reached out to everybody I could, including letters to the minister, Adrian Dix and, and Dr. Henry and others, to get veterinarians on the list, because it right. just makes no sense that we're not. And, and these are just examples of what can happen. And I mean, I understand it's not an easy job to sort all this out for, for the health officials and, and get people vaccine in a timely matter, but why others are on that list and we're not, and this is just a, a, a focus example of, of what can happen when veterinarians right. aren't able to perform the jobs. Okay, so this per, this particular horse that was in this life or death situation, you actually shared some of the, some of the x-rays with me, and you take a look at this horse's leg as clearly fractured. I remember in the I always thought that if a horse broke its leg, it had to be uh, it had to be put down. You must be really old, Mike. No, <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the old adage. But no, we have. But it's not something that every veterinarian can do. It's specialty services and specialty yeah. training and board certification and orthopedics, and the list just goes on. And we're we're very fortunate to have that kind of service available. But it's us for that. And and yeah. here's just you know bingo bango, and we're in trouble. Okay, so those. Those two veterinarians who were able to perform the surgery, they both have COVID, is that correct? Yeah, so that's why we felt that we were safe and not putting anybody at risk, uh, you know, deep cleaning afterwards and before. I mean, veterinarians understand biosecurity. I mean, that's where the phrase herd immunity came from. So, you know, we're more than capable of doing the job properly and not putting anybody at risk, and, and that's the only people that were involved were people that already were infected. So uh, we were able to save this horse, and, and that is was... It, the is that something thing. that, you know, I imagine, like, you've got COVID, you're supposed to be self, self-isolating self and quarantining, but are you saying, like, this was a case where this particular veterinarian, these two vets, even though they had COVID, they felt it was it was more important to save this animal's life? Is that what it boiled down to? 
that's kind of what it boiled down to. Yeah, and there was no other alternative. And like I said, we explored other alternatives. We just had to do the right thing for the horse, and we did it safely. Wow. Okay, so tell me what you think needs to be done, because you've written to Dr. Bonnie Henry about this, correct? Yeah, I think that all veterinary practices, but in particular specialty service practices, but we all provide special services under circumstances, veterinarians just need to carte blanche be able to start getting vaccinated along with their staff. It's, it's not gigantic numbers that are going to be involved, and it is just so frustrating that we've gone through this when our association months ago has been all over the, the health folks and, and, and the politicians trying to get veterinarians included. I mean, for heaven's sakes, in many provinces, veterinarians are being recruited to administer vaccines, and yet yeah. here we can't preemptively get vaccinated. And it, it just doesn't make sense that, uh, as I mentioned, multiple other practices, uh, the emergency clinics, et cetera, that are extremely vulnerable, but unbelievably necessary. It's like, gee, we're not going to vaccinate the people at Vancouver General Hospital because, well, if you're an animal owner, trust me, you need those services. Right. Speaking to Dr. David Payton, he's a veterinarian at the uh, the only full-service 24-hour horse hospital in B.C., which is now shut, shut down, right? You guys are totally shut yeah, down? No, that's right. We're, yeah. we're having to do our best on the farms, uh, send them to uh, other facilities if they're available, which aren't for the specialty services, and uh, it's a tough situation. We, we don't have too many more days to go, so fingers crossed here, but uh, but it hasn't been good. Okay, so are you you're asking for priority access to the vaccine for your remaining staff? Well, I don't want to be selfish about this. I'm asking for it for veterinarians. Yeah. Right. Okay, so for veterinarians. So what would you say to people who are listening to this, David, and say, well, wait a sec. Veterinarians, their patients are animals. We're talking about saving the lives of human beings, and, and humans got to go first. Got to come first here in priority uh, before animals. How, what, would, how would, what would you say to that? Well, let's put it this way, the animal-human bond is gigantic. I mean, there's been an explosion of people getting pets, and pets yeah. are part of families, and it's an important part of the, the family and the family unit. So what do you, what, what's the answer? If your dog gets run over and breaks his leg, hit by a car, your horse has got colic, we're just supposed to let him die in the field? Um, mm -hmm. We're needing vaccinating in a higher priority, I would say that a whole pile of others that are on the list of people that the government has designated need to get vaccinated. And they can walk in and get done tomorrow, and they probably walked in and got done two months ago. What is the impact of your hospital being shut down? Like you mentioned that this is a very highly specialized operation, the only full-service kind of 24-hour emergency care for horses at this facility in Langley. Now you're shut down. What kind of impact does that have? Like, what happens if you have an, another emergency sort of life or death case now? That's a tough question. As I said earlier, I've got my fingers crossed that we get through this without more. Yeah. But right now you can dispatch, you can dispatch some people to... To like almost do like a house call for the horse, or to that degree, or, or we've yeah. got colleagues that we refer to to make sure that these animals are getting properly looked after. Right, right. Is there a shortage of, of of veterinarians in the province? Like you mentioned that in this particular case, you had two COVID positive surgeons who performed this emergency surgery on this host this horse. Like, are there not other veterinarians available that can do this kind of thing? Well. 
again, getting back to the specialization, it's like your GP versus your heart surgeon. You know, they've all got their specializations that can't all do the same job. But part of the problem is that has been identified a couple of years ago is the shortage of veterinarians in British Columbia, period. Uh, we get 20 seats a year funded to the Western College. Calgary, uh, Alberta pulled out uh, two years ago. They have their own veterinary school and, and quit funding their 20 seats. So 20 seats became available. Our association started lobbying the government to pay for more B.C. students to go to veterinary college in Saskatoon. And unfortunately, that's fallen on deaf ears despite repeated uh, outreaches to the various government officials. And I don't know the fine details, but I know it was uh, approved to certain levels and at the last minute the funding request got turned down. Anyways, it's just part of the problem. Yeah, we need okay. more veterinarians and trained veterinarians to come okay. to the province. We continue to follow the situation very closely. Thank you very much for coming on to talk about it today. Great, and it's appreciate the opportunity. Thanks. Uh, all right, welcome back to the show. You heard my conversation there with Dr. David Payton. He's a veterinarian. His horse hospital shut down after staff got COVID. Uh, he wants the vaccine for his staff. 604-280-9898. Star 9898 in your cell. Celeste in Langley. Hi, Celeste. Good morning, Mike. Hi there. What do you think? Well, I highly support what Dr. Payton was saying. I had that exact situation on Sunday night where uh, a very valuable, talented horse was colicking. He was in agony, um, rolling around in one of our paddocks here, and I called Dr. Payton's clinic because we're clients of theirs, and one of his partners came out and the horse was in trouble. We were contemplating whether or not he'd have to have surgery, but the clinic was closed. And the thought of my horse dying in agony in my paddock because of uh, the fact that our vets can't get um, vaccines is absolutely devastating. I, I can't even imagine how bad that would have turned out. Luckily, he didn't need surgery, and uh, Dr. Martin was able to help him, and he's home and, and happy. But it, it's mm. just something I couldn't wow. even contemplate. Okay, Celeste, thank you for sharing that. Uh, I'm going to put you down as saying yes to the vaccine for vets. Let's go to Marie in Surrey. Hi, Marie. Hi. I cannot believe that they aren't on the list. Mm, yeah. They should have been vaccinated. If you have ever dealt with a colicky, colicky horse, mm. uh, as the previous caller had, I have with a child who... The horse belongs to, you can't imagine, and you cannot pick the horse up and carry it yeah. like you can a cat, dog, or a bird, or whatever. And this is the only clinic. Take a trip one day, Mike, to his clinic and see what it is. It's like going into VGH, but yep. it's for horses. Yeah, no, it's amazing. It's amazing. Marie, thank you for the call. Yeah, no, it, it's a very unique operation at this particular hospital in Langley that has now been shut down because two of their key veterinarians have got COVID. Shirley and Vanderhoof. Hi, Shirley. Hi. Hi, How what do you think? You? I'm good. I think, I think the vets should get the uh, essential service. Uh, up here in the north, when we're ranching or farming, we have 100, 300 head of cattle. We need a large animal vet, and those right. are the short. Those are the ones that we we don't have enough of. And if it's three o'clock in the morning, 
and the closest vet is three hours away and I have a cow that's having difficulties birthing, it's really difficult. Yeah, they no, need- and it, 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 thank you for that. No, it is a unique service that's being provided that has now been shut back uh, drastically. Heather and Langley, you got 30 seconds, Heather. Hi, I, I do feel support for those people who have um, livestock and horses that need that as an essential service, but I also believe all veterinarians in the province should have their vaccines because when you go into a, a veterinarian's office, you go into a small room, they close the door, they're exposing themselves to you, you're exposing themselves ourselves to them, and um, it's just not a safe situation. They're, they're like doctors, dentists. The uh, periodontists, they have all got their vaccines, so there's no okay. reason 